Welcome to Leveling the Playing Field, a podcast featuring women who work in sport. My name is Bobby Sue Doyle Hazard. Welcome back. And I am really happy to uh, share this interview with y'all. I held on to it for a little bit, for about a month. Um, and after last week's episode with Susie, it um, it's just fitting that we have Margaret follow. Uh, Margaret has spent the last nine years in obstacle course racing. Um, Some of that time as a professional athlete and most of it as uh, a business person and writer. She has a really unique story. A lot of um, the positions that she's held had never existed before her. Um, She's created a lot of her career and I love that about her. So it's a really great interview. Um, it's pretty wide ranging. And I ask her for details on ridiculous things. Like she went to a high school for skiers and I'm fascinated by that as you'll hear. Um, so bear with me, but it's a really interesting conversation. Um, we kind of go a little all over the place per usual. And I think you all will enjoy it. And if you could just do me a favor, If you haven't, and most of you haven't, uh, rated the podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher, please do so. Um, It really helps us to uh, get in front of some new people who might be interested in our little podcast that we've got going on here. So I'd really greatly appreciate it. And now on to the interview with Margaret Schlachter. Hey, Margaret. Hey, Bobby Sue. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. I'm super excited to talk to you today. Uh, myself as well. I am. Uh, I'm stoked, and I feel like I'm using that word a lot. <laughs> as I'm, as I just, I just interviewed somebody recently who owns a coffee roasting and coffee house company called Stoked Roasters. Oh my gosh, we use the word a lot. <laughs> uh, and she's also an athlete and yeah. a business owner. Yeah. So. Fun interview. That's fun. Um, I am going to start with what I tend to start these interviews with by asking you, how did you fall in love with sports? So uh, it's really, I, I, I've told this story before. And um, so my, actually, you know, my parents, my mom and dad, I'll, I'll tell it a little differently this time. My mom and dad actually met each other working for the 1980 Olympics in Lake Placid. What? So. I guess my mom worked in the press office and my dad worked in athlete housing. So they both worked and that's when they, they met was working at the Olympics and and whatnot and, and pre Olympics actually in 79 before the Olympics even got started. And then they got married in 1980, the summer of 1980. So after the Olympics, but um, yeah, so I guess you could say that I was born out of sports in a way. Um, you know, sports literally brought my mom and my dad together. So, um, yeah, yeah, I guess I can, I'm telling a little different. Normally I say I started skiing when I was two years old. My parents were both into skiing and, uh, they literally like pushed me down a hill (laughs) when I was two years old and I started and the joke is it's been all downhill since then. But, um, but yeah, no, I mean, they literally, they met at the 80 Olympics. So in a way, like, I don't really know life without sports. Like it's just, been part of my life. Like we've always growing up, we always watched the Olympics, obviously, because my mom and dad met there. My mom's like 
really invested in it. She worked for a public relations firm that some of the clients were like Skate America back in the 80s and 90s. Um, I remember watching like Christy Yamaguchi, I think she was the skater, um, skating. And then like seeing my mom, like standing on the, um, edge of the rink, you know, as we're watching on like NBC or something like that. And then as well, um, my grandmother's in the horse racing industry and my grandfather was in that and his dad was in that. So, um, yeah, kind of just, I've been around sports, different sports my whole life. (laughs) What did your dad do that brought him to the Olympics? Uh, my dad was living in Lake Placid, New York, had graduated from Paul Smith's college with a degree in hotel restaurant management and was working in the, the hospitality industry, but had always been interested in the Olympics as well. And basically dropped a job he was doing, moved up to Lake Placid and started to basically work as like a bartender and like, cause he knew he wanted to work for the Olympics and, um, ended up working in like something with athlete housing with, um, coordinating how the athletes were all housed from around the world. So I'm not exactly sure how he, <laughs> like what he did on like a day-to-day basis, but I know that it had to do with like the athlete housing and, and, you know, kind of like, like my mom, the same sort of thing. They both wanted to work for the Olympics. Cause I mean, it's a pretty exciting thing to do, especially like in 1980, um, you know, you can say like, I worked for the Olympics. I worked yeah, in the Olympics. Sure. <laughs> um, so yeah. So I yeah. think that's so a I guess pretty the, cool thing to do now. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, it definitely is still. Um, I, I guess, I guess I think that now we have, we're so connected to everything that like back then to like really go and be there in like Lake Placid, New York is this small little town in the <laughs> middle of the Adirondacks. So, I mean, anybody that's listening, that's familiar with that. It's, it's, not like a big giant city, like most of the Olympics are in today. I mean, Lake Placid's tiny. So right. to have all these nations just walking around the main street of Lake Placid, I can't even imagine what it was like. No, no, I can't. I mean, I have a hard enough time imagining them going to like Boston or LA. Um, you know, the fact that they were in Atlanta is still boggles my mind sometimes. Um and I think it's for that same reason we, you know, when we were growing up, it was such a, a distant thing, right? We didn't get all the behind the scenes. We didn't get to see all the the day-to-day action that we get to see now. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was just, it was a little bit more, you know, obviously there, it was like, you just saw it was ever on TV. We didn't, we weren't like watching the athletes Instagram feeds, right. <laughs> you know, and then be like, here's where I'm staying. That sort of stuff. That was all kind of, as you said, mysterious. So, um, what, yeah. um, besides skiing, what sports did you play while you were growing up? I played tennis. I did a little bit of horseback riding. I did gymnastics, but not competitively. Um, ballet, if you can call that a sport, I still consider it an athletic endeavor. Of course. Um, you know, so I did a lot of stuff. Like when I was a little kid, I, I kind of, we did a lot of stuff. Like I'm really lucky. My parents were kind of like, go try everything. Uh, when I got into high school, I played, I I always joke around, I played left bench in soccer. I got to high school and, Mm -hmm. um, went to a small boarding school and they were kind of like, everybody's going to play soccer. And everyone else had grown up playing soccer. And I'm like, I played tennis and skied and did all these other things. And, um, so I was never a very good soccer player still to this day. I'm terrible, but I played lacrosse as well. And then, um, played, I 
played division three sports in college and I was both on the ski team, Alpine ski team and lacrosse team. So, um, in my high school, I went to his first ski racers. So, um, you oh. know, I kind of just know sport, <laughs> you know, so it's kind of funny that I've ended up in different careers kind of around sports, but, um, you know, I, I, I don't really know what life is like when you're not around in and involved around a sport, I guess. Oh yeah. Um, we, let's back up a second. What is this high school for ski racers? Yeah. So, um, I went to Stratton mountain school on Stratton mountain, Vermont, uh, the ski area in Vermont in Southern Vermont. And it was a boarding school, but every, the twist of it is everybody at the school is there because they're a ski Alpine ski racer, Nordic ski racer, or a snowboard athlete. And now the school's expanded to have freestyle skiing as well. Uh, so that includes both, both the moguls and, uh, slope style. But when I started at the school in fall of 97, there were 50 of us in during that were there year round. And then we had a thing called winter term where we'd go up to like 75 students total in the winter. Um, so some kids would go to their normal public school in the fall and the spring and then come to our school in the winter, because unlike most high school sports, ski racing, especially if you want to do it at a high level, it's not like a sport that a school, most schools have a, a team, or if you want to compete at a really high level, it's, it's different than, uh, say like being on your regional hockey team or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, so you have to miss a lot of school and you travel a lot. So there are schools around the country uh, that are private schools, most of them boarding schools that offer an alternative. And there's, they have this for other sports too. So it's not just, just the school that I went to. I feel like uh, I've heard this for soccer, which is yeah. weird because soccer is everywhere, but that's a whole nother thing. Yeah. So, you know, you get to a certain level and you have to travel a lot. And I, like, I can say that my senior year in high school and I was never, I mean, I had roommates that like went on to the US ski team division one won national championships I was at the school I was with them training next to them but I was never as good as they were <laughs> and like the last um actually since we just talked about the Olympics the last Olympics we actually had nine alumni from the school the school's now about 120 students stop um, it at the last Olympics and um had a few medals and we've had medals in the past and that sort of thing. So like when you're in the dining hall, the dining hall had pictures, um, like big framed pictures of all the alumni that had been to the Olympics for the sport that they had been to throughout the year since the school was founded. So it's kind of this, like you're in this like hyper competitive, um, world where like the, the way your day was kind of structured is, um, during the season, and I can stop if this is getting boring. <laughs> no, I, I'm fascinated by this because okay. I grew up on Cape Cod and we had nothing. So Okay, so um, so the fall and the spring uh, were pretty much, I, I say pretty much like a normal school uh, with the twist of we'd be up at about 6, 6.30 in the morning and we'd have about an hour, what we called morning sport. So that normally includes some sort of running, stretching, basic warm-up of your day. Sometimes there might be some weightlifting mixed in there, depending on what the schedule was. Then we went to school from about 8.30 to 2.30 in the afternoon. And then from around three to five, uh, we had physical training for our sport. So again, that would be uh, lifting weights, doing 
sprints, playing soccer in the fall, playing lacrosse in the spring, um, just any sort of cross season, like off season training you do for sports. So, and then we go to, and then we'd have dinner and then we'd have study hall from seven to nine o'clock at night. And then, uh, we'd have about an hour of free time and then it'd be time to go to bed. <laughs> we would, huh. Then we'd keep doing that. And so uh, a lot of boarding schools, they have, that's kind of, you know, minus the morning sport part, you play a sport in the afternoon, you have an activity, you kind of fill your day up. But it, the twist is kind of in the winter. So in the winter, we would uh, be up again, probably around like, I think it was around seven, we'd get up, just do a quick little warm up. Most of the time it was like, get on a spin bike, stretch out, then go up onto the mountain and ski from or ride or whatever your sport was and train from about 8.30 until um, almost noon. We'd come in, have a really quick lunch, and then we'd go to school from 12.30 to 5.30 in the evening. So we'd still have five hours of school a day. Just We just kind of cut out all of the filler classes and just had our core classes in the winter. We'd, we'd have another little like afternoon training session and then dinner and then study hall and all that sort of stuff. But um, But the school's kind of set up so that if you did travel, so as I was saying, like my senior year, there was one month where I... I actually was sitting physically in my class classes. I remember five days in the entire month. Oh my gosh. Um, So a lot of it is you have to still do the work when you're on the road. You're just doing it um, uh, like independently, a lot of it. And now it's a lot easier. Technology has made it a lot easier. Like, you know, I graduated high school in 2001, which doesn't make me that old, but <laughs> it's all very different than how we're connected today. I mean, the, I went on to work at schools like this and one of the schools that I went on to work on at, they switched to all iPads instead of textbooks, like physical heavy textbooks to lug around. And I was like, oh, that that's nice that I used to lug around like 20, 30 pounds of books when I would go travel. Now they just have like an iPad. So, you know, the times have changed a ton and technology has changed a ton, but we'd come back and a lot of our classes would say in the winter, we would do a lot more reading and a lot more writing, um, say in like English classes and we do more of the grammar vocab in the fall and the spring, those sorts of things. And, and more of our lab work and our sciences would be done in the fall and the spring and more of the, the reading research again would be done stuff you can do on the road. So, so yeah, so that was my high school, <laughs> high school experience. It's so interesting to me. I mean, I went to your very standard public high school and, um, you know, I never really thought about what it must be like if you did a winter sport like that. You know, we barely had a hockey team, I think. And we had, a, you know, we had a rink right there. We had a rink that, you know, Nancy Kerrigan trained at, for God's sake. But, um, it, you know, we didn't, I don't even know if we had a ski team. Yeah. I mean, most don't have a ski team. And that's why it's really, it's something you kind of do on the weekends, something you kind of do not... Some schools have it, but um, even the the level that our school was racing at is, um, was you know, like I said, we had people who are steps away from like U.S. ski team. And when I went and when I was working in the schools, you know, we had uh, a snowboarder who she was on the Nike 6.0 team at the time. So one day I was like, Oh, where are you going? Cause she's like, Oh, I'm going to be leaving. I was a dorm parent at the time. And I'm like, Oh, where are you going to be leaving? And she's like, Oh, I, um, I have to go out to Mount 
bachelor baker or something like that. It was like the season was over and I'm like, Oh, what are you doing out there? She's like, um, I have to go do, and this is a 16 year old. I have a photo shoot with Nike for the next five days out there. (laughs) (laughs) And, and she really was just like, you know, it's really interesting when you grow up around kids and you're kind of in that environment, but then when you're, um, you know, I've spent most of my life around that environment where you're around kids that are 15, 16 years old that are like, yeah, I, my agent that I'm working with. Right. And, and, and it's not a pretentious thing. Like they're literally, they don't really know how to talk about it. And this probably sounds ridiculous to most people, but, um, but yeah, I, I mean, that was kind of my world. Uh, it's been kind of my world. Most of my life is, is that sort of, sort of a, a thing. Well, and I guess like for those types of sports, there isn't really a, and tell me if I'm wrong, uh, because I usually am. Um, there isn't really like a, a big collegiate space for it. Right. Or like not in the same way as like a football or a basketball. And so True. they're yeah. probably going pro earlier because it just makes more sense. They're not going to get scholarships or as many scholarships. Yeah. So like on the Alpine skiing side, there's definitely, and then on the Nordic skiing side, there is a collegiate track to take, but it's nothing like football or basketball. It's not something you're watching on, on, uh, you know, on ESPN or anything like that. So there is scholarship money, but it's nothing like those guys. And, um, even, uh, you know, some will kind of push towards, uh, you know, a national team is really kind of the pinnacle is to be on a national yeah. team or, and that sort of thing. There are other avenues, but yeah, you kind of, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and like division one schools in the country for Alpine skiing and Nordic skiing, there are, um, I don't think there's like a dozen maybe, mm. you know, um, and then the rest are all kind of division two or division three. Right. So, um, there, there might be more than a dozen, but, but there's really a few I've kind of, I, I haven't been in that industry for a little while now. Sure. So, um, yeah, it, it is. And snowboarding has kind of a collegiate thing, but not really. So if you're in the snowboarding world, you're basically, um, competing at like a professional level if you're getting up to that level. Yeah. So, and the endorsements that, you know, especially with, with snowboarding is out of control. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Uh, like, and I just, it's funny. I'll watch, you know, some of these kids and I'm like, oh my God, you just like your entire world just got paid for because of that little thing you could do on a board. Mm-hmm. I, if you're smart. Yeah. If you're smart. I've also seen some that have made money right away and then it, that go away. As fast well, that's as every made. sport. That's yeah. any sport where someone, you know, when you go pro, especially if you're younger, I mean, I feel like the only sports you go pro in later on are things like running, you know what I mean? Or golf where like mm. a lot of times you've had some life experience, but things like your typical big four, um, you know, those guys are, and girls are 20, 22, mm. you know, when they're coming out of, out of school. Um, and, and I deal with it on, as, you know, in our, our sport that I work in where, you know, the guys are that you forget because they're giant human beings. You forget that they're, you know, really young and inexperienced and uh, 
a lot of them come from situations that aren't great. So they didn't get that financial education. And so that's anyway, that's going in a whole nother direction. But how did you, I mean, besides the fact that it was like at a mountain, essentially, how did you decide to go to UVM? Um, so I did my master's at UVM. I actually did my undergraduate at Babson college, oh. which is right up. So you're, you're from the Cape. That's, I yeah, mean, well, I know a bunch of people like, went to Babson. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, and I went to Babson purely because it's just a business school, which is the the first thing it had a ski team I could ski for. It had a lacrosse team I could play for. And I always kind of like business and I didn't know what else I would do. So I was like, <laughs> well, if all else fails, just get a business degree and you can do kind of whatever you want with it. Mm-hmm. Um, which I still stand by to this day, actually. Um, because it, it doesn't really matter what you work in. Some of the things that I learned at Babson, like I, I use some piece of that education, I think almost every day. Um, it's a great school. So, and yeah. I, I, um, I have a lot of friends, like I said, who, who have gone there. Yeah. And, and, you know, so I have, I have a degree from there in strategic management and entrepreneurship. And then from there ended up back in the kind of, I coached lacrosse at Skidmore college for a year, uh, right out of college. And then I had been kind of ski coaching when I wasn't, um, training myself and racing in college and started ski coaching as well out of college and then ended up back at my high school. Uh, but now as a, I was running a pre-admissions program for the school that we brought kids in, they got to kind of basically try out the school for uh, a week long period and was a dorm parent and a ski coach and, uh, kind of whatever else, when you work in a small boarding school, whatever else they need you to do. Um, from there, then I ended up at Killington mountain school, which is another ski academy. And I ended up being head of admissions and college placement there and coached skiing. I coached lacrosse kind of all through that as well at uh, the high school level. And then in 2012, I did a complete career change (laughs) and quit my job was actually at that point, six credits from my master's at, uh, UVM. And the reason I went to UVM was because I was already in Vermont at the time. It was a state school and, um, I paid for my master's degree. So, and they had, they had an education leadership program, which was, is, is, is a pretty good program they have there. And I was, as I said, I was head of, um, admissions and college placement. So it kind of, seemed like the natural thing to do was to get a master's in this since I was already you sure. know, working in that, that, well, that and, space. And then, and you're coaching you too. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like, you know, so that's going to go hand in hand with that. Exactly. And, and it was really funny when I was getting masters, it was a lot like I would take classes and instead of business, like I had in my undergraduate, it was, it was like business leadership when I was at Babson, when I was at UVM, it was like education leadership. So I felt like a lot of times I was taking the same class. We just put a different word in front of it. So it was like, (laughs) instead of business law, I was taking education law. (laughs) Um, but it's great. I mean, it, it, a lot of it was about how to work with people and how to um, deal with policies. And um, UVM was great because we ended up talking about some topics that, you know, I've brought into my podcast. I brought into kind of my mindset today um, with just diversity issues. And because mm-hmm. Vermont as a state, when I live there, <laughs> it's not a very not. diverse state. Um, and, and I live in Utah now, which is also not a super diverse state. Um, 
Sorry. But what it did, you know, but what it did make me realize is that how much diversity, even though there might not be diversity ethnically in certain places that I've lived, when you start looking at socioeconomic and then ideological diversity, and then you go, oh, wow, this, these places actually are more diverse in some ways than I thought they were. And it made me kind of step out of like my mindset of how I was thinking to kind of start to look at you know, how other people are thinking. And then you add education on top of that. <laughs> so how do you deal with all different types of types of, um, you know, populations and whatnot. So, so yeah, so that was, that was UVM. And, uh, and then I took a four year hiatus. So I actually just graduated from UVM like two years ago. I think it was now two springs ago. Um, because I took a four year break with six credits remaining and ended up taking one class at the university of Utah and one class at the university of Vermont to, uh, to, to finish up that master's degree. But, but I have it now. Um, but, but, uh, 2000, <laughs> I have it now and, um, it's there and it's, and it's good. It's an accomplishment, yeah. right? It's something that you can feel good about no matter how long it took. I mean, I don't think that ever matters. You know, it's not like you were s- sitting at home. Uh, you've, you've been slightly busy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just a little <laughs> and, bit. And yeah. And that's probably what you mostly wanted to talk about. Now we've been talking about skiing for a while. No, I mean, listen, all of that, like for me and for the, for this podcast, you know, part of it's showing like the different dimensions of people as well. Right. And so what, you you know, the things that you did growing up end up having an impact and, you know, going through the different schooling that you did. And, you know, like I said, you've coached and that, like, I don't even know how you start coaching. Right. I had a great coach when I was in high school for running and I, I guess am a good quote unquote coach to friends who start running now. But to come up with like plan for like a whole team and like working with different people, like for me, that, that seems like a daunting task. And so you having done it for as long as you have, um, is, is, is very impressive. Well, thanks. Yeah. I ended up having 10 seasons coaching, uh, Alpine skiing, seven seasons coaching lacrosse and was everything from the assistant, assistant, assistant coach to mm-hmm. having five or six coaches underneath me at a weekend program. Um, what? and I've coached everything from four-year-olds up oh. to collegiate athletes. <laughs> was it rare for there to be women in coaching roles in those sports? So it's interesting. Uh, women's lacrosse was, I coached with honestly, mostly women. Um, it tends to That's be great. pretty female heavy. Uh, as I'm kind of thinking back, I only coached, I think with one or two guys, there were male coaches, but I mostly had female coaches. I think I had personally one male coach in eight years of playing lacrosse. And, um, I think when I worked in as a coach, I think I only like personally myself coached with two other men when I, I think I'm trying to think I'm like, it's pretty much all women. Um, now when you talk about skiing, that is a very different story in the weekend programs, like with, which I think most people would be familiar, like they drop their, their kids kind of like a ski school 
bowl type thing, but they're signed up to ski race for the the season. They, they go and they, it's either Saturday only or Saturday and Sunday they go, you know, they have their coaches, their parents drop them off in the morning. They have lunch with their parents and they finish out the day. Now that, that I would say there are a, at least when I was in the industry, we had a fair number of women coaches. I'd say it was about 50, 50 almost because, uh, and what I, I've talked a lot with people in the industry about this, that it's an easy way if you have a family to still be able to coach, Mm -hmm. you know, and because it's just a weekend thing. And a lot of times the coaches also had kids in the program as well. So um, maybe it wasn't 50, 50, maybe it was like 40, 60 to women to men, but it's still a fair amount. Like, like there, there is a fair amount. Now, when I was coaching at the ski Academy level, and you get up at the higher levels, there tend to be less and less women. And again, I've talked with some women about this, especially women that have been in this for a long time. And a lot of it is depending on what age group you're coaching and the older age groups you coach and then um, into like collegiate and then into like national teams or those sorts of athletes, you have to travel a lot. I mean, you're traveling almost a month in the in the summer uh, which is the quote unquote off season, you're gone two to four weeks of your summer and then you're gone. You can be gone weeks on end, um, in the winter. And I think something, and, and maybe it's changing. I don't know, but it it seems like when women tend to want to start what I saw kind of, and I was in my twenties at the time in the industry was that, as people start wanting to start families and you have like young children, you just either don't want to, or you just can't be away from your kids that much. And it, and I saw it really hard as well, even on the men that had families, like it was really hard on a lot of them, how much they had to travel. So that a lot of the coaches, either they don't have kids, um, you know, they make that conscious decision not to have kids or, a lot of people, you know, are still in their forties and fifties and either are divorced or have, you know, still kind of single. That's kind of what I saw. Now it doesn't mean that there aren't people that are females that are married, that have kids that can make it all work. And they've got spouses that, you know, are happy to be the, the one that stays at home, whether, you know, whatever their partnership looks like, But, um, it's just tough when you can say like, Hey, I'm going to be gone like three weeks out of every month for five months out of the year. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This is, I mean, this is a discussion that I had with, um, Tara Black, who is a COO of the Charlotte checkers. And Mm -hmm. it's something, I mean, in coaching in general, we've seen a decline of women, of female coaches in collegiate sports. So that's like, number one. But -hmm. then when it comes to the sports industry, generally, we see um, women dropping out um, and pursuing other careers. And we think that part of it is that um, that family um, notion and um, what those, you know, partnership roles should should or can be. Right. And flexibility is one thing that we've talked about, you know, having flex weeks or whatever. Coaching's a little different, obviously. Um, but I think in, in almost every coaching relationship that I know of, you can, you can only have one person be a coach. 
because yeah. it, it just gets un, unwieldy. Um, and that person has to be, you know, uh, there just has to be that partnership, not like the, the set roles that we're all taught to, to be in. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's difficult for some men to, to, to take that on. Um, yeah. And I think it would be difficult, you know, for uh, honestly, for any, I mean, it's difficult in any partnership, whether I think as well, whether you're looking at, um, you know, a same sex relationship, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a traditional husband and wife, you know, like, you know, I'm married, I've got a husband. Um, but it's, I think that no matter what your kind of structure looks like, I think it, it it's just hard on another person and I actually had a conversation with my podcast as well with someone who, whose um, husband is in the fitness industry and is, gives a lot of talks and is speaking a lot. So he's constantly traveling and they have two kids yeah. and you get into a routine. She said of like her and the two kids, which she's happy with, but then like Ben, her husband comes home and it's almost like he disrupts the routine. Yeah. yeah. And, and I know even like, cause I travel for work still, which we can, you know, get to that eventually. And <laughs> You know, we haven't, but, um, you know, I sometimes like this February, I was gone, um, with a race that I work with, I was gone for a week and a half. Yeah. And I mean, for myself, it's my, myself, my husband and our two dogs, but still it's like, when I get back, we've got to reestablish the routine again and we've got to reestablish like who's going to feed the dog in the morning. Well, I'm used to doing this and I'm used to doing it this way, or like I'm used to having dinner at this time. And, and so I think that that's something that especially like coaching, or if you're in a role as a referee, if you're looking at professional sports or you're looking at, um, some sort of any industry that makes you travel a lot, especially sports make you travel a lot, yeah. but, um, or the sports think, that have so many events, right? Hockey, baseball. Yeah. 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 So I think that that it makes it hard to have a really good balance of having kind of that, that balance of how do you work with your, your, your home base, your partner, your, your life partner. And then at the same time, how do you balance out the the career as well? And I, I, I don't think that's a gendered thing. I think that's an everybody thing. Um, and I'm sure when you add kids into the mix, it just, uh, you know, that stirs up a whole nother pot. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I, I, I literally don't know how people do it. It's me and a cat and I can barely handle life. Um, <laughs> can you tell me how you learned about the first Spartan race? Yeah. So this is really, to me, this is one of those serendipitous moments in life. I have to say, like, I don't know any other way to say it. I found out about the first Spartan race before it happened. I was on the Killington fire rescue when I was working at Killington mountain school as a volunteer EMT. One of the guys on the department with me, his girlfriend at the time was in nursing school and she liked on Facebook. I'm using like quotes, right? Yeah. Now. I don't know why she liked this, this thing, this page called Facebook or called Spartan race uh, because they were going to give, some of their proceeds to, um, one of the hospitals around and, um, Spartan race actually originated in Killington. Well, in Pittsfield, which is the town right next to Killington, but it really had nothing to do with that. It was literally, she just liked this thing. And I'm like, Oh cool. What's this thing? And, um, you know, as we kind of established, I've been an athlete my whole life, but I was coaching. And if anybody's ever gone from athlete to coach, it's a lot 
different when you're when you're coaching, you're active, but you're not <laughs> nearly as active as you were as an athlete. So, you know, I was just looking for something to do and I was looking for it. I kind of had a, a few bumps in life happen, um, which I actually it's the introduction of my my book that I have out that came out a couple of years ago. It's being re-released actually this September oh, that's uh, fun. 2018. Yeah, I just found out from my publisher that, um, they're, they're re-releasing it. So, so that's exciting, but, um, you'll have to have Joe write a whole thing in it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, he, he wrote, um, an endorsement of it where he actually called me like the Amelia Earhart of obstacle racing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, so yeah, so I just, you know, I, I was, I just liked this thing. I was like, oh, well, I hate, this is the funny part is I hate, I hated running. Like in lacrosse, I was the lacrosse goalie. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have to run as much, but they had these things, these obstacles. So I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll try this thing. Like I figured the obstacles will break up the running. And then if I had to walk in between it, it wouldn't be as embarrassing. Um, So I signed up for it and then I did it. And it was like, you have these, you know, I think you have these moments in life where like, it just something sparks in your brain and something just like a light bulb goes off, a little trigger gets hit and you're like, wow, that was different. That was interesting. Like I'm excited again yep. to do something. And, and that was what obstacle racing was for me. And I just literally got home. I remember getting home and being like adventure race, obstacle race, <laughs> mud run. Like we didn't even have a name for it. This was 2010. There was no name for it. Um, I found warrior dash. I found a few other small races that happened as well back in 2010 and signed up for everything I could. That was within a reasonable driving distance right. and it was just your weekend warrior. <laughs> like, and the funny thing is, is that like people are like, Oh, were you some crazy whatever? And I'm like, no, I was an out of shape, 20 something who drank a lot of beer and ate a lot of wings at like 10 cent wing night and was coaching and was just working, going about my life as like a mid 20 something year old non athlete post collegiate athlete. Yeah. <laughs> that I think, I think when I talk to other athletes, they're like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I mean, I mean, I think after I graduated college, I gained like 15 pounds. Oh, um, I, I, can't fat. Even. I was never like fat or anything, but I, um, you know, I gained like 15 or 20 pounds after, after I stopped like having like a, a normal routine with coaches and stuff. So I, you know, I, I just found something and found something again. And then I found something to like get excited about. And I had tried like a duathlon before that to get excited about it. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so then, then it just hit. And then 2011, I, I was actually at, a Spartan race 2010 where they had this, um, banner fly over tough mutter had this banner fly over that said, you think this is tough, try a tough mutter, which is funny. Cause this has now been like chronicled in some books, but I was one of the people that was standing there watching this plane fly by with this banner and great ambush that, marketing. Yeah, it was great. This is what those guys used to do back then, like back and forth. This is like how tough mutter and Spartan had this whole like back and forth thing where then like Spartan would like flyer all their races at like a tough mutter in tough mutter parking lots, stuff like that. Yeah. Like went on back and forth for the, in the beginning. Well, in this first race, like I, I just want to back yeah. up a real yeah. quick. So, so at this point, like, so Joe DeSena for people who are listening is the founder of the Spartan race company. He's slightly insane and in like a good and a bad way. Sometimes I think like sometimes I'm like, you're going to get somebody killed, but it's fine. It works out for him. I know, I know his extended family. Yeah. Um, And we used to, we used to train together 
and we used to live five miles apart from each other. I've coached his kids. Yeah. His wife is a friend of mine. So like Joe and I have done stuff together. Like we've been like in the woods before and he's like, let's go up this way. I'm like, that's not a trail. He's like, let's just see what happens. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm like, do you know how to get back? Like we've gone up trails, none, not marked on like the first day of hunting season in Vermont. And it was kids weekend. And I'm like, <laughs> we didn't have anything on that said like any orange on like, like, <laughs> We, yeah. So, so yeah. yeah. So, so I know he, what you're saying he started yeah. this because he, he was just really like, he, he'd get like people who just were really down, you know, coming to their farm and like yeah. doing work for him. His book is funny. And, um, so I, anyway, I know a lot of the background because, um, his wife's brother and I dated at one point and we're okay. still very good friends. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we're still really good friends. And, um, so, um, I, I had interviewed at the company, um, about six months before I got the job that I have now. And I, and I remember being really upset about not getting it because I was like, well, it's perfect. Just got the running and did it. And I did all this research. So I know like all the background, but so you were the first woman to run this race, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was one of the first women there. Yeah. I came in, um, top 10, the race was totally different than it is today. I mean, then it <laughs> well, was he like, just kind of put it together and his whole goal was to base it all off of like army technique. Right. And not like, you know, just shocking yourself just for the fun of it. Yeah. He was like, it was kind of this, well, you know, so the death race was going on first and that's what you're kind of referring yeah. to <laughs> with his like doing farm chores. Like people would pay lots of money to go do farm chores. Um, <laughs> You know, and, and the New York Times called the death race a combination of survivor meets jackass. Yeah. I'm paraphrasing what they said, but they said that back in like 2009 or 10. Yeah. So then Spartan Race was kind of like the beginner version, I would say, of that. You know, like they were like, OK, this is going to be actually be a race. There's like an actual course. There's like set things you have to do. This isn't like Joe just like makes it up on the fly. Well, and then he would change um, it right in the death race. He'd be like, meh. We're going to yeah. change this now. You thought you were done. You're not. Yeah. So, well, he kind of did that. It kind of <laughs> happened at the first Spartan race. So I signed up for what I thought was going to be a two mile race. Oh, no. <laughs> I showed up on race day and they go, oh, it's actually going to be two laps on this two mile course. So there's going to be four miles. And then they're like, oh, and by the way, if you do well in your heat, then you go into the finals, which is another lap on the course um, and, and the finals at the end of the day. So, yeah, <laughs> I mean, today it's like multi-million dollar company, a little, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's very structured and organized and it's not this crazy wild west. In some ways it's still the wild west, the whole industry, but right. it's not at all like, oh, we told you you're going to be one thing. We changed our mind. Now it's going to be something else that you're here. So, yeah. So the first race was that, uh, Matt Batts was the guy who actually designed the race course who lives, um, like in Pittsfield still today. He manages all the trails on Joe's mountain, which, um, <laughs> he Joe owns a mountain. <laughs> yeah. He owns, he owns a, I think like 160 acres in Vermont and on that is a mountain and he lets people mountain bike and hike on it. Um, so it's actually pretty cool, yeah. but, um, but yeah, so Matt, so that, and, uh, some of the obstacles were built by the farm, by the farmers that were running the farm on the property that he owns and which are uh, all people that don't really have farming background. They're people who are like down on their luck and need to be straightened out and stuff yeah, like that. Some, I mean, it's amazing. Some, they, so 
two of them that were there were real farmers. They were real farmers. They were just really young. And Joe gave them a chance to to be farmers at like 20 something years old. Um, but it was crazy. Like the first race, like the guy that was, um, they used to have these, uh, pugil sticks, like America, like the old, um, uh, American gladiator. Oh, show, yeah. Yeah. Like, so they had a guy and he was literally like the farm intern. He was this big dude and his name was like big Anthony, I think. Um, and he was like in the woods and you just ran through these trees. And then all of a sudden there's this guy in this clearing, like trying to hit you. So, um, <laughs> Which after that race, they moved it to the finish line. And then in 2000, I think it was 14 or 15, they actually took that out of the race. So that's a a retired part of the race now. Um, As it's moved more towards a sport, those pieces have kind of gone away. Yeah. In 2011 Uh, is when you started Dirt in Your Skirt, right? And can you tell us what the impetus was for that and, and, you know, kind of how it turned into... Um, yeah. the amazing site that it is now. Yeah. It's, you know, again, these are one of those pieces where it's like, right. I don't want to say luck fully, but there is a piece of luck. There's a piece of hard work, right place, right time, all those sorts of uh, stars aligning, whatnot. Um, so 2011, I did my, that first Tough Mudder. So I did actually do a Tough Mudder that spring and I crossed the finish line there and they said, you've qualified for world's toughest mudder, which is a 24 hour obstacle race. Um, so, you know, you can fake a lot of things in life. Right. You can fake, I mean, you can be in marginal shape and still get through a 5k. You can be in okay shape and still not that great a shape and get through a 12 hour or 12 miles, excuse me, obstacle race. Now it might take you six or seven hours to do when the winner takes them two hours, but you can, if you've got enough grit and tenacity, you can get through it. Now you can't fake 24 hours of racing. Like, you know, I was smart enough at that point to know, like I've been coaching for, for a while, had been in sports my whole life. Like I know the level of what you can kind of quote unquote fake or like get yourself through. Um, and 24 hour races are, are not something that you just like, Oh, well, I don't need to train. I'll just go do it and see what happens. Uh, <laughs> you know, and maybe some people can, you know, maybe some of you, if you can more power to you, great, great for you. But, um, but no, so what I did was I was like, you know, I have been a coach at this point, I've been an athlete. What are the pieces you need when you decide you're going to commit to, um, you know, like a big race, you need accountability, you need some sort of training program and you need like, again, kind of accountability. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to say accountability twice because there's like two pieces to accountability. I feel like, um, so I was like, well, what better way to hold, hold myself accountable than just document my training? And that's really all dirt in your skirt was in the beginning. It was a little blog. It would be like today I'm going to, and I'd put on the Facebook page that I created today. I'm going to like run this trail and I'd have my like Nike plus app or Nike go, whatever, you know, the one on your phone is. (laughs) And I would just push start and I would go do whatever that trail was. And, um, then, and, and in that I had found like an ultra marathon training plan. And this is kind of part of the accountability was, um, you know, I, was a coach and worked at school. You don't make a ton of money. So I don't have a ton of money to like 
hire private coaches and all this sort of stuff. So, so I was like, okay, I found this program. I can kind of do it. Um, you know, work up to like a 50 miler. That was my kind of goal. And to go from basically like a 5k the year before doing races that were no, the longest race I'd done the year before is a half marathon distance. So like, Oh, next year I'm going to go and just do like a 50 miler with like no (laughs) real running background, but we're going to make this work and figure it out. And then I went down to the local climbing gym and then I knew the owner and I was just like, Steve, you know, look, I don't have much money. I need like, I want one training with you a week. And he's like, well, I got this idea of wanting to do this in the military background. He's like, I want to infuse like some of our military boot camp stuff with rock climbing skills and then strength based stuff. That's um, kind of along the lines with Joe, honestly, like the two of them kind of get along too. And he's like, I can't really call it what I've always wanted to call it climb fit. I've had this idea for years, obviously CrossFit. He didn't want to infringe on that, but Mm -hmm. he's just like, I've had this idea of mixing fitness and climbing together. I'm like, Oh, great. He's like, but I've never had anybody test it on. And I'm like, great. (laughs) I'm like, guess what? I'll come down every Wednesday at this time. You run me through an hour of whatever you want to run me through and I'll pay you 30 bucks a session. (laughs) Sweet. And he was like, he was like, you don't want to know what's going on. I'm like, Nope. (laughs) <laughs> just tell me what I need to bring. Like, do I need to bring sneakers? Do I need to bring whatever? And, um, so that was dirt in your skirt. That was the beginning was finding this free training running program. And then just knowing as myself being a coach for so many years and coaching myself still at the time, I knew how to mix in strength training. So I was doing, I think I was running like five days a week, lifting like two days a week and then doing my thing with Steve once a week or something like that. And I was taking like one real full rest day and another day that I would just kind of do whatever I wanted to do. Um, and I, so I was training a ton. I was training at one point, like 20 hours a week. Cause oh I was gosh. single. I was living at the school. I was living on the base of Killington mountain. And so, yeah, I just put what I was going to do in the morning out on the, out in the Facebook world through the page. And then I'd go and do it. And then I'd come home every night and I would write about what I did. And then through that, you know, nobody else was really doing it at that point. So it was a really small market. Um, obstacle racing was still like, we didn't even really have a name for it still. And I I just started and then I would like get a pair of shoes and I was actually one of the first people to kind of use innovate, which has become a brand that's like synonymous with the sport almost now, but I was kind of an early adopter of that. And, um, you know, I just get products that I was, and I wasn't, nobody was sending me anything at that point. I was just, just a chick in the woods who lived in the woods and was doing all this crazy stuff, like throwing rocks around and like, <laughs> just like, I don't know. I was just making it up as I went somewhat. And, um, so you were an you early influencer. Yeah. I mean, I don't even, it wasn't even, it, and it was funny cause it, I influencer is so weird to say now because I was yeah. just, just being me, you yeah. know, like I was just out there and, um, you know, obviously I, I, I should also say, I guess, I went to Babson. I have a degree in strategic management and entrepreneurship, but I wasn't expecting this to be a job. I just knew that like I wanted to document this for, and then like, and then early on I was like, you know, I think this has moved beyond. And this was in 2011 before anything was kind of really getting going. And, you know, I'd had some successes. I had been on some podiums. I had done well at some races and, so, you know, people were starting like CWX. I ended up getting sponsored by them pretty early on and some other 
people were like, Oh, can we just send you a pair of socks? And I'm like, cool. You want to like send me socks? Like I don't have to go buy socks. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, um, and I write about it, that sort of thing. And, and then I was starting to do well. And I was like, you know, I think this is more than a blog. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it's going to be, but I think it's more than a blog. So I, uh, one of my friends that I went to high school is actually a professional triathlete and she had a website and, um, I was like, Sarah, who makes your website? And she goes, Oh, I work with this guy. Um, John, he owns this company called Wid six. I'm like, cool. And he does, uh, athlete websites. I look and I'm like, Oh, I know like two other people that he's done websites for sweet. Um, (laughs) so I remember fall of 2011, we had a Skype call. The only time we've ever kind of looked at each other face to face. And I was like, Hey, I want a website. And, uh, we worked together, we created a logo and then in December, 2011, like right at Christmas, basically my Christmas present that year to myself was the website kind of in the form it is today. I mean, obviously it's been tweaked a little since, since then, but, um, yeah. And then I had a website. (laughs) And it turned into a community for other women who were interested in obstacle course racing, because I mean, if we're being completely honest here, OCR, when it, you know, through its first few years in particular, and I'm not sure how it is now, it's been a while since I've, you know, kind of been that attuned to it, but I mean, it was very bro-ish. Yeah, it's pretty bro-ish. And I was in, and I was actually in the group with, um, there was a few of us back at, and then I, you know, I've never actually worked for Spartan Race, but I've worked with them close enough and I've done some consulting stuff. So it's yeah. like, I've worked with like so close to them over the years, but, um, we founded a group, um, myself or Carrie Adams was working at Spartan race at the time. And then we were friends and, um, she said, Hey, I got this idea. I want to get this women's group, like get more women involved. And so we created this thing called Spartan chicked at the time. And, you know, which chicked was the idea of like, you're chicking a guy, like you're running, you when a female beats a guy. I mean, it, it also, it's all like, so like, I don't know, kiddish now, (laughs) but you know, whatever we were, we started this thing. And then as well, like during your spirit, like I was just like, you know, I want to just have this, this place. And I want to have this, this resource for women. Cause there's just not a lot of us out here. And the ones that are out here, like we need to band together sort of thing. And, you know, over the years, during your had a lot of different iterations to it. It's I've had contributors, I've had ambassadors. I had a forum for a little while on the pie on the website. Um, then I, I started working for other companies full time as well in the industry. So then for a little while, it felt like it was dying a slow death. And then, um, then I started podcasting two years ago and it's kind of where it sits today is it's kind of grown beyond obstacle racing at this point to now just, I just think it's amazing going and finding women out there in the world that are doing things, whether it's in sport or in life or whatever that they're kind of, it's still, I I created, had these ethos that I put out actually kind of talking in circles right now, but, um, I had this ethos that I put out years back, back in 2012 to the community that I had growing with during your skirt that said, you know, like if there were words to describe what you think this 
what you think Dirt Your Skirt's about, like submit them. And I made it into kind of like a contest thing. And the three words that I ended up out of, I don't know, I got a ton of submissions. There were some really cool ones, but, um, and I remember putting them all on note cards and sitting down with the note cards in my apartment I was living in at the time and just going through all of them and like what sits with me and what feels the best. And I came to the three words that ended up turning into the mission statement. And the words are explore, conquer, and inspire. And kind of the mission statement from that, I grew out of its um, explore new, new things, whether that's like in, in, it started out just in obstacle racing, you know, exploring new races, new, new challenges, that sort of thing. Um, conquering old fears. And the third part, the inspire part is inspiring those around you or being inspired by those around you. Um, and it's kind of evolved over the years, but that's really the ethos of during your skirt is explore, conquer, inspire, like explore new topics, explore new things, explore, you know, whatever it is mm -hmm. that you're interested in, go for it, explore it, you know, conquer those old fears. Like we all have fear, fears around everything, you know, around all different things. Either people have told us that like, you know, maybe in running, they're like, oh, you're never going to run a marathon. You know, screw that. If you want to go run a marathon, go train for it and run it. You know, um, you know, they say like, you don't, women don't do that sort of business or whatever. Well, screw that. Like, you know, get over that fear, get over whatever everybody's yeah. told you. And then just, I, I feel like I used to say, I think when I was younger that it was like, I want to inspire those around me. Like, but you know what, I, if people get inspired by what I'm doing, that's awesome and good for, for them. But I would rather let action speak louder than words. Although we're sitting here on a podcast, just talking, <laughs> <laughs> but I but, think it's, but I, I think it's yeah. important, right? Like it, you know, um, I, I think over the years, whenever you have something that's so new, like the interwebs, right. Yeah. And so you have a website and it's a, you know, kind of a community it, that's always going to evolve and grow as you evolve and grow as for what your focus had been as the sport evolves and grows. I mean, I, I had never, I'm a lawyer. I mean, <laughs> you know, like what am I doing with a podcast? And it was because of one of those moments that you've, re you know, referenced where like something like the idea or, or the doing of something just kind of fit. And, um, and then, you know, knowing that it was going to become something bigger than just this little thing that you're doing. Right. Um, but I love that you've kept to the main values, right. That have been so important and that you continue through them by doing things like you starting a podcast as well um, by going and working with the guys at Mud Run Guide um, and, you know, becoming this expert essentially in yeah, a, in a sport yeah. that is like, you know, people still don't really get. <laughs> no, no, it's funny. You know, it, well, I have to say this is my, as we're recording this now, this is my ninth season in this industry. And, um, you know, and it's funny because the jobs in the different opportunities I've had, like along the way, they like didn't even exist. Half this stuff didn't like when I started out, this stuff didn't exist. When the, some of the things I do today didn't exist four or five years ago. It, it, it's like, it's, it's funny. I always get, I get asked a lot. People are like, well, what, what's your, 
what's your five-year plan? What's your whatever plan? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I don't think that we don't. And when people ask me, what's the sports plan? I go, I don't know. Because every time I think I know I'm, I'm most of the time wrong. Like I'll back up a little bit. Like when I, in 2000, uh, spring of 2000, no, it was spring of 2012. Yeah, it was, it was early. It was like April of 2012. I had, um, Gaspari nutrition send me an email that said, we would like to talk to you about coming on our athlete roster as a professional athlete with us. And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) Okay. Um, because obviously, as I mentioned a while back, you know, I grew up around athletes that were, you know, professional athletes at young ages. I was working with kids who are professional athletes. So, so like, I, I understand the idea of like what it means when a company is like, Hey, we want you on our athlete roster and we want to pay you a monthly salary to be on our team. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh, this is, and, and as a kid who's been in sports my whole life, never fully at that level, but around people at that level. I mean, that's kind of like the pinnacle, right? If you're an athlete, mm-hmm. like somebody says, like, we want to pay you to do the thing that you like to do. Are you kidding me? That's amazing. That's an amazing opportunity. And, um, you know, it, as well, it was always this, this, uh, funny feeling too. Cause most of the people on the team at that point, like Rhonda Rousey was on the team. Oh my <laughs> gosh. I was, <laughs> and we're getting the same emails and stuff. Um, and then they had a bunch of like fitness models and and some MMA fighters. And I was just like, wow, I'm like the obstacle racer over here. I'm like the, the crazy person. Um, out of that group. I don't know if you're the crazy person. Yeah, I, know, I know. I guess, I guess I'm like the least mainstream out of all of them, I guess I should say. Um, but, but yeah, so like I signed on with them and then the way my job, my career was in education, like I loved kids. I still love kids. I loved coaching. I didn't love some of the politics of working in education, which is like a whole nother podcast right there. Oh my there. gosh, yeah. And, um, so I was just having this moment where it was like, I could feel everything coming to a head and I didn't really know what was what to do. And then like the, the website was starting to, people were getting involved with it. Um, you know, I guess Barry was paying me not very much, but just enough to like, you know, cover the basic bills. I was getting other, um, apparel and stuff sent to me as well. And, um, I just, in July, it was 4th of July weekend. I told my parents, I'm like, and I met my now husband. We'd actually met in 2011 through obstacle racing, um, ironically, which is why I live in Utah now. Um, but, um, we like, I was just like, you know, I, I don't think I want to do this anymore. This, 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 education, this track I'm on, like I was doing everything you're supposed to do. I had a good job. I had a, everything was good on paper, but it just didn't feel right. And so I told my parents 4th of July weekend, I'm like, Hey, you know, I'm going to quit my job. (laughs) And they were like, are you sure? They're like, you got a great, like my mom and stepdad, I remember telling them, they're like, you got a great thing going right now. And I told my dad and my stepmom and they're all like, you got a great thing going, but we'll support you. Whatever you want to do but do you, how are you going to pay for your life? And I'm like, well, we could, you know, guess bars pay me a little bit. They're like, yeah, how are you going to pay for your life? And I'm like, well, you know, I'm going to try this. And they're, they're super supportive and they're like, okay, go ahead and try it. See what happens. And this is those moments in life as well, where I just say, 
you just know sometimes that it's the right decision to make because the, I got back to the, the school. I got back to Killington mountain school. I sent an email to the head of the school. Um, and you know, the next day I go in and I have these meetings where I'm like, Hey, you know, I'll give you 30 days, but I'm done. Like I'm done with this job. I'm done. And they said, uh, I remember here having a bunch of people say like, how are you going to make money? This is a bad decision. Are you kidding me? All this sort of stuff, which I think happens anytime somebody is like makes a radical move. And, but that day, the end of that day, I got an email out of the blue through my website from Tuttle Publishing mm-hmm. uh, from my initial publisher, but or my initial editor who I ended up switching editors halfway through. Um, but Bud sent me an email. I said, would you like to do what, like what you're doing on, my, on Dirt in Your Skirt? We've been following it. We would like you to turn it into a book and write a book about obstacle racing, like a coffee table type book that people can go from zero to their first race. And we want you to write it and then had a meeting like a week later. And then a couple months later, um, had the contract signed and I had three months to write a book and wrote mm-hmm. a book in 2014. And as I mentioned, it is being re-released in 2018. So, um, I guess that was just one of those, uh, like, I like to tell that story because I think it's so applicable to so many people that when you just know something's not right, you know, sometimes you just have to pull the trigger. Now I was also 20 something years old without a mortgage, without a husband, without sure. kids. Without, so I, I'm a little bit more cautious these days of just saying, just pull the trigger and just, you know, uproot your whole life. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it, that, that's what happened to me. And, um, you know, uh, then ended up getting injured. I did the professional athlete thing for a little over a year and a half and then got injured and was out of the game for, almost a season, almost a full season there. I couldn't really race. Um, cause I'd sprain the inside and outside of my ankle at the oh, same time. God. Uh, it was a two plus sprain at the, like on both the inside and the outside at the same time on it's crutches for never the months. same again. Yeah. Never the same again. And so then that actually though ended up, it was a blessing in disguise because it ended up pushing me into the media side of the industry where, um, I'm at today. I've been able to write for about.com for, I worked with them for two years. Uh, I've written for outside magazine. Um, I've been featured as an expert in a number of publications and, uh, you know, it, it's what led to working with mud run guide, becoming their editor in chief. Um, I also work as the media director for adventure, which is the company that puts on the obstacle course racing world championships this year. They'll be outside of London. Uh, we also have that company also has a South Africa championships that they do. There's one, they have an Australian 24 hour enduro race that's coming up. We have the North American obstacle racing championships coming up in August, which is ironic. Another one of those like weird moments. I don't know. I, I still haven't processed it fully, but the championships being held at Stratton, oh. uh, nine years and one month after I, um, left working there and it was not my choice to leave. There were budget cuts and my job got cut there wow. and which kind of spawned this whole getting into obstacle racing. Yeah. So like, you know, all these things happen and, and it's just life. And, and, um, you know, so I've been really fortunate that, uh, it all kind of works out, 
I guess at the end, I don't know what else to say, but it all kind of works out. And it's, uh, it's been a really, it's, it's been a really crazy ride so far. And as I said, I'm going in my ninth season now and I've kind of been everything at this point. I feel like from, um, as I said in the beginning, I was just your weekend warrior. Then I ended up with a career as a professional athlete, then an author, then a writer. And, right. you know, I've had my own web series. I've kind of had, and my husband and I actually had this conversation the other day is that it's just kind of like, I've just not really like, I, I've seen other people who are in the industry who, who are like now in positions where they're working with more established, like uh, media outlets or something. I'm kind of still on the fringe of different things. And he's like, you just kind of make it happen. You just kind of, if, if nobody wants to, if nobody's offering you it, you're just going to go out and do it yourself. And he's like, he's like, that's what you ended up doing with your podcast. He's like, he's like, you've always wanted to interview people and do, and do interviews and kind of do the, all this stuff. And now you're doing it. You're here, you're doing it. You just just made it happen, Um, which I think is the, I mean, you know, 20 years ago, you couldn't do that. And I think that's one of the really cool things that that we're at in this space in the world right now is that we do have the possibilities like you and I are sitting here on this podcast. We can, we can make a podcast and nobody can tell us we we can't. (laughs) Well, they can try and tell us we can't. And and then there might be a conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, you... A lot of what you say it hits so many themes that a lot of my other guests have had, you know, the, the, that strange serendipitous timing of events, whether it's, you know, um, we had Claire Lessinger on. She's um, director of special events for Tampa Bay Sports Commission, but she used to be a volleyball coach at USF and she was a coach for like 15 years and, you know, was kind of like hating it. And knew that like something had to change. And then unfortunately her mom got sick. And so she decides, okay, I'm going to step away from coaching, but isn't really sure what she's going to do. And then this amazing opportunity at Tampa Bay Sports Commission comes up, which never happens. That organization is like never hiring because people stay there until they die. And, um, and so like listening to your gut is so important, I think. Mm-hmm. And learning to trust your gut, um, which a lot of us, I mean, I know for myself, I wasn't always great at. And I would, you know, second guess myself. But, you know, when it comes to these things, like we we kind of know and um, and just trusting in your own abilities. And and then the scrappiness, I just love, you know, like the all right, you're not going to do it. I'm going to do it for you. <laughs> yeah. OK. And I think that comes honestly, I think that kind of scrappiness and just being like, well, you can't really tell me what to do because I'm going to figure it out. Uh, (laughs) I think some of that comes from sports, honestly, Yeah, you know? And and I think some of like when people say, you know, where I I say like everything that's kind of happened is a little bit of luck, but a lot of it's hard work and stuff that happened behind the scenes. And it looks, I think it uh, it looks, I think that's the the mystique of it all. If you can make it look effortless, if people think you just are like gliding by and everything just comes to you, then it's because you've cultivated the skill of working really hard, um, which I think comes from athletics. I think that's something that you learn that it's like, if you want to be good at a sport, you have to practice. 
like, you know, it's, uh, you can, you hear it from everybody. It's like, you hear, you know, Michael Jordan, it's like somebody was like, well, Michael Jordan can hit so many three, you know, free throws or whatever. And it make it look effortless. Like well, what you don't see there. <laughs> yeah. What you don't see is like the hours and hours and hours of just constantly doing it, constantly practicing, constantly honing that skill. And I think that that's something that, and I've talked to other people that, you know, a lot of high level business people have a background in sports and you talk to them and they just, they just know how to grind it out. They know how to just sit down get the work done because that's what you do when you compete in sports. You just sit down and, and there's like, like you want to be good at a sport. No one, you, like there are people that are, have innate talents, you know, but they still have to work at their craft mm-hmm. uh, to be good. And you can talk about Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hour rule, all that sort of stuff. But it's really just sitting down and doing the work. Like nobody's going to do it for you. If you think that like, life's just going to all get handed to you, then maybe it will. Maybe you're one of those really lucky people, but for most people, it's, uh, there's a lot of grind and a lot of hard work that goes into these like magical moments appearing out of nowhere. It feels like. (laughs) Right. Right. I mean, people, you know, when I talk about my story, the fact that I ended up basically two of my jobs are somehow, I got them somehow as a connection through Twitter. So my Mm -hmm. first professional legal job was because a follower of mine on Twitter was a Boston business journal writer. And then my current position is because I connected with my former boss because he just recently left David Cohen through Twitter years ago. And we just maintained that relationship. Right. And it's like, well, yeah, that happened. But in the meantime, (laughs) In the meantime, I wasn't in my ideal, you know, career situation and I took a lot of like curvy twists and turns and, um, you know, goes back to that scrappiness and just being like, no, this is what I want to do. I'm just going to, it might take me a little longer, but I'm learning skills that will help me when I get there or I am making the connections that will make, you know, help me be successful when I get there. And, um, you know, I... I wouldn't be where I am had it not been for sports when I was younger. I know that. I mean, my coach when I was in high school basically, you know, kept me from going to the dark side. So <laughs> as as can happen. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, I'll give you a, a funny piece because I know we're towards the, the, I think we're, I mean, I could sit here and talk all day. But, well, yeah, we go, um, we go until we decide to stop, basically. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, you know, so I think, you know, I learned, I can tell you one thing that I've learned through this whole journey so far. And, you know, I'm almost 35 years old, so I'm still not that old. And I, you know, hopefully knock on wood that's right next to me. I have a lot of life left. But, um it, the, one of the funniest lessons that I have learned through this whole obstacle racing world is, well, I've learned two major lessons. The first one is that just because people want you to do something doesn't mean you have to do it. Mm-hmm. So, and and what I mean with that and, and how I can tell you the exact moment that I kind of learned that is when I did the, so I did Joe's death race in 2012. I did it for about 26 hours. And then I wasn't having any fun. Like there's like, obviously it's like suffer. There's like suffering and, but there's this like masochistic part where you're still enjoying your, 
there's some enjoyment in the process, you know, yeah. uh, that even though it's hard, you're enjoying the process of it. Well, I wasn't enjoying the process of it. I wasn't enjoying any of it. And I was just, all of a sudden I was just like, I don't need to be doing this. I had this moment where I was like, I don't need to be doing this right now. Like I'm here, I'm doing it. I could keep going. My feet were pretty gnarly, like pretty macerated, like pretty waterlogged looking. Um, but I, I just was like, I don't have to do this. And I went up to Joe and Joe and I know, knew, knew each other really well at that point too. And I was just like, Joe, I don't want to do this. And we exchanged some, uh, I'm giving you the heated very nice words. part. Yeah. Not even heated. I just, I just told Joe that I'd rather be effing, I'd rather effing run the peak 500, which is a 500 mile running race over 10 days. Uh, <laughs> then do this right now. I just wasn't into it. I just like, I wasn't into it. I was watching what I was seeing. Just, I just like, I just wasn't into it. And up until that point, I had never quit something because I didn't want to do it. Mm -hmm. I had always just done what was expected of me. And now I'm like 27 years old (laughs) And, and like, and I'm like, just learning how to say, no, I don't want to do something. I mean, I mean, that's like, part of that is like, holy crap, it took me that long to say, say no to somebody. But, um, Joe like is very persuasive person. Mm -hmm. He circle talked me into like, keep going. And then I literally turned around and ran away from him and and, (laughs) like I physically turned around, ran away, ran back to where we had just been, got a ride back. Um, my now husband and I, we, I took a nap and then I went back and helped out with the race for like another 20 hours. I helped out. I I just didn't want to race it. You, you no, got no interest, to, no yeah. interest in doing it. You got to fuck yeah, this shit so o'clock. It's interesting. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. And, and it, what was really great is like, I learned that, you know, and it was, it was, that was about a month before I quit my job. And I think that moment of that, just like, I don't need to be doing this. I don't want to be doing this. I'm not having any fun. And I'd rather be doing this other thing over here. So, um, it was kind of like, gave me some of the, the strength to when I did quit my job to say like, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> like yeah. I do not want to do this anymore. And so it's funny. Cause like most people are like, Oh, well you failed. You didn't finish the race. You failed. And I'm like, I learned more in that quote unquote failure than I have learned in many races I have finished. <laughs> like I tell people most of the time in, in sport, I've learned more from my failures than I learned from my successes. Successes are cool. It's cool to like finish really well. It's cool to like stand on a podium. But what's really cool is when you hit some, you hit a spot or you just cannot go on or you just, you learn that you don't need to be racing. When you come away from an event with like a profound insight into your own psyche, so I think like that's one of the coolest things you can learn in obstacle racing. And some people get that from just a five mile race. They they hit those same points. It doesn't have to be like these crazy endurance things. But um, like that was the that was the first thing. And then the second thing I learned, which kind of goes along with the first one, is I don't think anyone's keeping score. Now I might be wrong because <laughs> I have not died yet, and I have not like I don't know what's beyond this life, um, you know, and 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 whatnot. But I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. And now I'm wrong a lot of times. So if like, again, if I'm wrong and somebody knows the answer to this, you can come back from the dead and tell me, but I'm pretty sure that at the end of your life, somebody is not there with a checklist that said like, did you run a marathon? Yes or no? Yes, you did. Okay. You get five points. Did you like, did you get 
married? Yes or no? Like, yes, no. You get this many points. Oh, you didn't? Oh, minus two points. Like, I'm pretty sure there is no one keeping track. <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. Like, as long as you're living out whatever is authentic to you and you're enjoying the things that you're doing, I don't think that like you have to do something because everybody else is doing it. And I feel like I've learned that through this journey, which is kind of a funny thing to learn in sport, but, but I'm pretty sure that no one, there's no checklist at the end that says like, did you floss two to three times a day? (laughs) Oh, you didn't. Oh, no, that no, no, you you can't, you can't go on to, to heaven or whatever you think is next because you didn't floss. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm like, I'm sort of just going off, but I don't think I I just like, that's one of the big things that I've learned is that like, there's a lot of, a lot of people I think get sucked into this sort of idea. Like I have to do all these things. Well, I don't think you have to do anything, do whatever makes, do whatever makes you happy. If like sitting on a rock and meditating in your free time makes you happy, then go do that. If like watching a whole season of Westworld's about to start again, as we're recording this, mm-hmm. if sitting and watching Westworld for like 12 hours makes you happy, go watch Westworld. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, like, hands made tale is about to be released again soon. Like yeah, that's exactly. that whole weekend I've blocked out. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, I guess that that's the thing. And, and it's really easy to slip back and I'm not perfect at this. And I feel like that's the other thing I've learned as well as I'm far from perfect. I'm a very flawed person. I have all sorts of issues, all sorts of neuroses and, and that's okay. We all do. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it's okay. And we're all works in progress. So what I love about the story about that race is I like learning through your failure is actually one of the biggest and most um, important lessons in business, you know, Mm -hmm. and, you know, you have to be in an environment that allows you to take risks in order to fail and to fail well, you know, and quickly sometimes, which is just as important as being successful because that's how you learn what's going to be successful. Right. Um, I had my own moment where I was like, I don't have to do this with um, reading, which sounds weird, but I'd, I always finished every book, mm-hmm. every single book. And there was a book that I was trying to read, the Goldfinch book. And I don't remember the, the full name of it. I think it might just be the Goldfinch. Everyone was raving about it years ago, four or five years ago. I remember, like, I just couldn't get into it. And I kept slogging through it and slogging through it. And then all of a sudden I realized I don't have to fucking do this. <laughs> like I'm not writing a book report. I'm, I'm an adult and I can choose to live my life by reading things I find enjoyable, or I can continue reading this piece of crap that I have no interest in. Hmm. Okay. I'm not reading this anymore, but like what I'm reading a book. And this is like how I get to that epiphany. It's insane. No, I, you know, you're not the first person I've heard say that the, it was a book that they had that first moment at. And it makes so much sense, right? You're in school. You got to read the whole book. Right. <laughs> because there is no option to like, just read half of Catcher in the Rye and then be like, you know, I don't really like that book so much. Or grapes of wrath or, you know, whatever other book is like 
you had to read in high school and, and you'd be like, you know, I don't really like this book so much, but, but I want to pass the class. So I have to keep reading it or at least get my friend to tell me what happened. Um, yeah. Yeah. So then all of a sudden you're an adult and you're like, wait, I'm doing this for fun. And this isn't fun. fun, So I don't want to do it anymore. It's a, you know, and, and I think that's something that we kind of have to like revisit and continue to learn over and over again. Um, you know, I could say like, I, I went, I, I rearranged my work day and I went skiing this morning and it was kind of cloudy and it was kind of windy. And I was like, you know what? I've skied for an hour and a half, almost two hours. I gave myself a three hour window. I was like, you know, I'm done. Yeah. It's good. I took like eight runs, I'm like eight or nine runs. I'm like, I'm good. That was fun. I went home and then enjoyed sitting in my greenhouse, working in my greenhouse for the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> like I was on my computer working, but um, I mean, it was like, 75 degrees in there. Yeah. So <laughs> I was like, I was like, I don't have to suffer. Excuse me. I don't have to suffer for suffering sake. Like I'm an adult. I can, I can make these decisions, which is ironic because the sport of obstacle racing that I've learned this idea of, I don't need to suffer just to suffer. And, and, you know, Joe is kind of all about getting people to suffer and to learn grit and tenacity. Right. <laughs> and I think there's a place for both of those things, oh, right? For like sure. It's great to be a gritty person who can just grind it out and get stuff done. But at the same time, are you moving forward in what you're doing? Or are you just suffering to suffer? And if you're just suffering to suffer, maybe it's time to reevaluate what you're doing. Right. Right. I mean, we can be both. And I say this a lot with like women's events, like, you know, empowerment stuff, right? Like I am the chair of, our local chapter of the American, what is it called? American Association of Corporate Counsel. Wow, I need caffeine. And so it's like all in-house lawyers and um, our local chapter, we've started a women's group and coming up with events. And I'm like, listen, like we don't have to go to the exact extreme and not do anything, quote unquote, early. Like if a law firm wants to pay for me to get a manicure once in a while, I'll fucking take it. Like, yeah. sure. But if that's all we're doing, then I'm going to have an issue. Like we can be both simultaneously. We can be, you know, really strong leaders who want to be treated equally da, 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 and still like things that are pink, you know, yeah. or whatever. So I think the same thing is with the suffering, right? Like you can allow, you know, like to suffer under certain circumstances and then not other, you know, in yeah. everyday life. And I think that makes sense. I mean, and athletes in particular know that because that's basically like half their life, you know, mm. <laughs> the training and the recovery and all of that. Right. And, um, and working in sports can be like that too. And, and I think that when you get to a point where you're like, you know what, this, this isn't fun anymore. You know, like I'm, I'm not passionate about the team, the sport, the, you know, the, you know, little niche of this world that I'm working in. I think that's, you know, when you kind of look and reevaluate. And I think that's a constant process as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head and, and there, and it, it, as you said that it really kind of connected some dots for, for me as well, because I think that <clears throat> sports is such a high, high pressure thing and athletes are used to that high pressure thing. And it wasn't, I, I and I've started to see this more with more high level athletes. It's like, we're just, it's like the, the knobs turning a little bit in life. I think for a lot of people, like it's all of a sudden, like you're seeing a lot of articles across the board, business, sports, whatever about taking time to meditate, 
Yes. Gratitude journals. Mm-hmm. Importance of sleep. For a long time, remember, I think it was, oh what was God. it? The, the, the 80s and the 90s was all about like grind, 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 work, work, work. How little sleep. Became. Like my friends in, in finance. Oh, uh, I didn't leave my office for three days. I, a, I only slept two hours in those three days. I'm like badge of honor. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that... Um, What's interesting is that we've seen people like go out and we've seen like this obscuracy in this whole industry grow up with people like getting people back outside, getting people back out in the elements and getting people to really push themselves in a really real visceral physical way. But now at the same time, we're also seeing this flip side of people being like, wait, I don't need to suffer just to suffer. I get to do things Mm -hmm. and now I need to actually take time off and I need to put more time into my schedule for meditation, gratitude, rest days. You know, Amelia Boone is like the the superstar of her, the whole obscuracy industry. She and a couple other people, they created rest day brags. It's an Instagram yep. and Twitter feed where they you brag about how little you do on your rest days. Like you might see like somebody eating like pine ice cream, watching six hours of Netflix, rest day brags, yeah. you know, and it's like celebrating the, the celebrating the quiet time and the in-between that it seems like at least for all of my life that I can remember um, has kind of been thrown by the wayside. Cause it's all about succeed, 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 success, success, success. But we've lost our whole connection to a lot of things yeah. in, the, in that process to the world, to nature, to, to each other, each other. Yeah. Like, um, and, and now there's like a, I think there's a resurgence of people reclaiming that right as a human. And oh, um, yeah. So that goes into that suffering for suffering sake. Like you don't always have to suffer just to suffer. You yeah, can, you for can, sure. You can just sit and like before this podcast, I sat with my husband, we watched the um, fish in our little pond in our backyard for Aww. 20 minutes and we watched our chickens and our bees and our dogs. And that's what we did. And I didn't have my cell phone with me. That's awesome. <laughs> and that's, that's okay. Like, yeah. Like, Allowing myself to say that's okay is something I, I still struggle with, but, um, you know, I'm learning. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things, one of the, the big topics I'm exploring in my podcast these days is like, it's okay to do all these things. It's okay to just be. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I talk a lot on here, I, you know, I'm one of those people who I'm at this point in my life and I'm not much older than you, but I just like, I'm like, I'm very authentically myself all the time and I don't know how else to be. And so that makes me a little different. I'm not your typical lawyer. I'm not your typical really anything. And I talk a lot about how like, I need like nine hours of sleep. It's a legit thing. I need it. Um, I've learned over the years, like what happens when I don't get enough sleep and it's not pretty. I can, I can obviously deal, you know, but it's like, if I want to be like not getting sick within a week, I need to make sure I'm getting a, a good amount of sleep and I have sleep issues. Um, I, I talk about mental health and, and, you know, the different things that either I do or that other people do and, and, and keeping, you know, tabs on that and how important that is and how, um, you know, there's no shame. There shouldn't be any shame in it. Um, I, you know, say everybody needs a therapist basically, because let's be honest. Yeah. Um, whether I think whether your therapist is a traditional therapist, your friend that you just have coffee with, a preacher, whoever, a preacher, yeah. you work with an energy healer, whatever. <laughs> whatever, yeah, whatever it is, you just need everybody needs needs 
something. Yeah. And then you like, you know, anything with animals, like, yeah, like I love goat yoga. It cracks me the hell up. I, I think it's hilarious. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, like I'm just a very, you know, I, I've learned over the years that in order for my mental health to be at an optimal level and therefore my, you know, um, my brain being at best capacity in order to do my job and to be effective at it, that I need to do those things from time to time. I need to sometimes just shut the door, the blinds, shut off the phone and hang out with my cat. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it's just, you know, it's just the way it is and it's okay. And I think part of learning that honestly was moving down to Florida and I, I had, you know, I, I'm from Massachusetts. I moved during snowpocalypse. So there was five feet of snow outside of my <laughs> stupid Quincy apartment. And um, I get down here and it's like gorgeous. And for like the first couple months, I'm like, I got to get outside. It's beautiful out. I got to get outside. It's beautiful out. I got to get outside. It's beautiful out. And I'm like, I'm exhausted. I just want to sit here and watch TV. And then I'm like, it'll be nice out tomorrow. I can stay in and watch TV. It's okay. I'm just like... <laughs> putting down that like guilt or shame or whatever it is that like I felt by, because up North, you know, this, like if it's yeah. nice out, you get the hell outside because it, it's not necessarily going to rain be, for the yeah. next two weeks. <laughs> it's going to rain. It's going to be cold. It's just going to be gray. Like, you know, we love summer up there for a reason. And, um, and then just finally like accepting, like sometimes I'm just not going to feel a hundred percent and that's okay. And so I need to do whatever I need to do in that moment. And, um, you know, I think people who are top performers, whether it be in business or in, you know, athletics, we sometimes forget that, you know, our body needs to recharge, our mind needs to recharge. And even, you know, top performing business people, you may not be doing something that's athletic and uh, physical, but your body's going to wear out. You're going to get tired and you're not going to perform at optimal levels unless you do those things. So um, that's something that I talk a lot about because I think people, you know, have this notion that like, oh, the more hours I stay in the office and get FaceTime, the better I am. I'm like, no, do your job effectively and then leave or efficiently and leave. Like get your job done. Cool. Go home whenever you need to. That's my, you know, my thought process on it. You know, if your job allows, you know, I don't stay in the office just to 10 o'clock, just FaceTime. That's ridiculous. You know what I mean? Like, why would I do that? But on those times when like, we're like, Hey, we're hiring a new coach, (laughs) you know, I I know I'm going to be there for like the next 36 hours and that's okay. Um, you know, while we work that all out. Yeah. It's balance. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's balancing the whole system and you know, it's creating and it sounds like you, you know, you're a lot like me where it's just like, like I pretty much, I used to, I'd work seven days a week if I, you know, if I didn't set limits for myself, especially since I work from home. But, um, you know, I set pretty solid, like you, you send me emails on Saturdays and Sundays. I might see them, but I don't respond to them until Monday. Yeah. And I don't, um, sometimes I take social media free weekends where I just, I go offline and the joke has been like, if you go do something, you don't post about it online. How did does it happen? <laughs> like, did it happen? Like, like, of course it happened. Later, Graham. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, and, and, and sometimes it's like, um, I, I, I can just take this 
past weekend example. Uh, my husband and I spent Sunday, we went off to some hot springs that there are around here and then hiked and went for kind of run hike whole little situation with some hot springs in the middle. And, um, I left my cell phone in the car. So there was no option of documenting it. I was just like, I'm with the person right now that I want to be with. Yeah. He has his phone. And like, if it was a major emergency, my family knows his number. And, um, we didn't even have a cell phone service. I don't think the whole time. I don't even know. There wasn't cell phone service the whole time anyways. But, um, you know, it's like, like I'm, I'm learning, like, and I've learned this from my podcast guests, like sometimes put the stuff down and just, just hang out, yeah. <laughs> which is really hard for me to do. Like I'm the worst meditator in the world, but I'm trying, I'm trying right. to learn how to just sit and just be, and just be with yourself, which I think is, for a lot of, especially if you've been an athlete, your most of your life and whatnot, um, can be really challenging to just sit with yourself mm-hmm. and just be forced to be with just you. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I found, you know, the social media stuff, you know, I've, I've used Twitter as a crutch for a very long time, you know, when um, I went through like a, a really hard breakup and then, you know, and I've lived alone now for, I don't know how many years. And so for a while I would use it as a crutch as like a, you know, I'm lonely, you know, I need, you know, and I had a, a I have a good, I don't know, base of people that I know through Twitter. Right. But like for mm-hmm. a very long time, that's how I used it as like a, you know, somebody fill the giant hole that's in my life right now. And, um, you know, luckily I don't, I don't get that as much now, you know, I, and I think that's just an evolution of myself, but with the podcast and having the podcast accounts, I find myself like not trying to figure out how to do it all, right? Because I'm so used to just normal mm-hmm. communication on my own Twitter and my own, you know, Facebook or whatever. And like having to actually be really thoughtful and like plan things is hard. But then, you know, Instagram changes its stupid algorithm or whatever. And I'm like, well, what the fuck? I don't, <laughs> if I don't do something on stories, then I just basically don't exist essentially. And how are people going to find my podcast? And oh my God, what am I doing? You know, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and you know and so I have to like sometimes I just have to like sit and calm myself and like the guys that help me Jerry and Jason they're you know they're like you're the worst sometimes you just literally will not put anything out about the podcast for a week and then it's like every 20 minutes you know the <laughs> next time they're like maybe a little balance like in in between mm-hmm. somewhere maybe like that would be cool you know it'd be you know maybe no okay um <laughs> So I'm like playing through that. I love that you mentioned Amelia because I follow her on, um, on the social webs and, uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, Instagram and I, you know, I'm always fascinated with her and, and at some point in life, you know, Ian tried to, uh, did an email intro for the two of us and she Mm -hmm. never responded, which is like, I mean, the woman, I don't understand. She's an attorney for Microsoft. Apple. Apple. Other sorry. One. Other one. Sorry. I take <laughs> yeah. it back. Uh, yeah, no, no. She's an attorney. She's a high level athlete. She is, uh, we're on the same board for a charity together. It's we're crazy. actually on a board meeting call and she was, um, going to, uh, fly somewhere for something. So she was like, Oh, gotta go. I'm going through security right now. 
Um, I'm jumping off the call now. <laughs> yeah. No, she's, she's incredibly busy. She's it, it, incredible. And it's, um, you know, we've known each other since 2011 and kind of been on this ride. It's, you know, similar, you know, kind of we've been on it about the same. I've we've got it a little bit longer than her, but I've been on it about the same. And so it's been really interesting to kind of, you know, kind of see where it all, all goes and where it all happens. And, um, you know, kind of watching, watching all of our lives kind of continue to develop. And, and then when we do get to see each other and then we end up sitting and going, remember when we're like, oh, yeah. old, <laughs> we're like the old people sitting on a porch. We're like, remember when in the old days we used to, and then we're like, oh my gosh, we are those people now that sit and go, remember when, <laughs> And, um, and anybody, if they want to listen to the podcast we did together, I feel like half of it's just the two of us going, remember when <laughs> we used to, when we used to walk uphill to school both ways in the snow without shoes, you know, I don't know, just stuff like that. Yeah. But, um, before but, they had a Theragun and before they had, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah. I mean, she's just one of those incredible, incredible people that is, um, very driven, Mm-hmm. has a lot of, a lot of, um, talent and sport as well. Very smart and, um, you know, does a fairly good job, at least from, from my point of view, at kind of trying to keep it all in check. And I feel like she's learned a lot in the last, um, you know, you'd have to talk to her, but, um, I, I think that the injury she dealt with, mm-hmm. um, you know, we had conversations offline and, um, so we had, a lot, we, we dealt, we both dealt with similar themes, um, through both our different injuries. Uh, obviously hers was a way more public than mine was. Um, but, uh, it, it's, um, you know, and, and she'll even be the first one. I mean, she's written it multiple times that how much she's learned from, from that injury and she's come out a smarter, smarter athlete yeah. from it. Well, she I was injured a year and a half yeah. basically. Yeah. And it, and I think that, I think that happens a lot. You know, like, I think that's a common thing. You know, when you have a big injury like that, you realize like, oh my God, I need to rest more. Like the overuse, the continuing when something hurts, stuff like that. Like, okay, maybe I don't do that again. Um, Let's talk about your podcast a little bit. So um, you started about two years ago, year and a half, two years ago. Yeah, June 2016. So that's exciting. Yeah, it's been, it's been really exciting. You know, it started off and I didn't really know what it was really going to be. I just knew I wanted to, um, I'd been profiling women on the the website in a written form and I've been a podcast junkie since 2006, which is like way before most people listen to podcasts. I had it on an, on an iPod that you had to download through (laughs) iTunes. Um, it's because I drove across the country by myself. Um, uh, to, to, I've done, done cross country trips twice by my, completely by myself. Um, but I was that particular time I was driving across to go live for the summer with a guy I was dating at the time. And, um, I was going to be spending three days in the car by myself going from Vermont to Northwestern Montana. And, um, I, I don't know. I just kind of found podcasts. I don't even remember how I found them or anything like that, but I put a whole bunch and, um, listened to them. And I don't remember if I continuously was listening to them, but I just kind of like, you know, I just listened to a lot of this podcast doesn't exist anymore called more hip than hippie. And it was these 
two women from Chico, California, talking about green living before like green living was cool. And they were talking about bringing your reusable shopping bags. And, you know, and again, this 2006, so it's not that long ago, but it's pretty long ago considering where, how fast kind of the world changes. And I just liked it. And then for a while, like at least with the obstacle racing space, I was just kind of like, there were other people kind of in the space and that they were kind of like the podcasters for the space. And then I saw more people entering in and I was like, well, shit, everybody else is doing it. Why can't I? I want to do it. <laughs> and then like, I even got people who were like, oh great. another Oscar racing podcast. And then, uh, then I started putting it out and people are like, wait, you're not actually talking about obstacle racing. That's like five or 10% of what you're doing. You're, you have all sorts of people on. Yeah. And the theme kind of ended up being along the ethos of explore, conquer, inspire. And the whole idea was to bring women on. And then I quickly changed my own little rule because I make my own rules in my podcast. Um, of course that I would give myself some flexibility to say, and some men, cause you know what, so there's some guys that, that there just isn't a female equivalent sometimes, or they're, you know, they've got something to say. And so I've only had three males. I've got almost a hundred, I've got over a hundred episodes recorded, not, not released necessarily yet. And three have been men. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so I'm at about 3% um, uh, <laughs> male on, on, but, um, but I do leave myself open to, um, you know, having like a couple a year if I want to. And that's kind of my own little like internal, um, decision I've made for myself, which who knows, maybe in another year I'll change that too. Um, cause it's my, like I said, my role is my, my podcast. Um, Hey, I get it. I had, <laughs> I had one of my girlfriends on who has nothing to do with sports, but she wrote, um, her, a debut, not like she had her debut novel come out and I freaking loved it. So I'm like, yeah. you're coming on. I don't care. <laughs> and that's it. And that's honestly, that is what kind of brought it on is because I realized I looked around me and I think everybody was starting to pigeonhole me as you're the obstacle racing woman. You're the one, you're the obstacle racing expert. You're, you've written the book, you've been in this, you were the athlete, all that sort of stuff. And I was like, yeah, but I do all these other things that I really like and I want to <laughs> talk about them too. And I'm like kind of saying it in like a stupid way right now because it's true because you almost, people are like, well, that's what you are. And you're like, well, that's not really what I am. I do all these other things too. And that's part of who I am too. But everybody's like, no. And, you know, every business thing says you got to stay on brand. You got to stay, you know, you create your niche and stay in your niche and you stay on brand. And I'm like, that's so boring. So uh, with the podcast, I was just like, well, again, my podcast, my rules, my, and I do it all. Like I book my guests. I edit every episode. I don't have a team that works with me. So it's me, myself and I for, from start to finish, like it is one of the most authentically me, um, things I think that I've ever done. I mean, it almost feels like when I started during your skirt in the very beginning, it was just so like there, it was just whatever I really wanted to be. There was no expectation on it. And so that's kind of what I've done with the podcast. So I've had on all sorts of people. I've had on famous people. I've had on not famous people. I've had on experts in all sorts of industries. Um, most of it's just, I find people really fascinating. And what I was initially seen is I know, you know, I've had a couple different careers and I've had careers within careers and I've met just interesting people along the way. And I was like, you know, 
this person isn't famous or anything, but what they do is pretty cool. Yeah. And I think people should know more about this person. You know, like I've got a mm-hmm. friend who, who turned down Playboy and we have a whole episode about like how she like disrobed at her high school graduation and had no clothes on underneath and had given this whole speech about, um, about having like rites of passages and that we don't really have them in our modern society. And this was part of her whole speech and it made international news in the like late nineties. Oh and then Playboy offered her, um, a bunch of money and she said no because that wasn't what she was doing and now she's older and she's like could have used that money and really it's just being naked and like what's really the big deal but um <laughs> she you know she's gone on to um she studied ayurvedic medicine in in uh india she's a yoga instructor and she helps run her parents bed and breakfast in vermont now and like so she's like not nobody that's you know, she's not quote unquote famous or anything, but I guess she had like a few minutes of fame. Um, but like, it's just a cool story. I have another friend who I met through the gym. I work out, um, or I used to work out here in, in Utah and, and she, uh, does medieval armored combat. What? So yeah, this is a real thing. Like she oh puts God. on full armor and has like sword, a sword, like a real sword. It's just not sharpened. And they fight like you would see in like the Renaissance and stuff. And all their armor has to fit the right period. So you can't put one period with another period type of armor together. And because this is lighter than that, it all has to stay within the same time frame. And there's a lot of history that goes into it. And then there's also the fighting aspect of it. And I was like, this is really cool. Like, I don't even know any, this is like crazy. You know, (laughs) I've had on uh, a a shaman who I read her book and I was like, this is fascinating. I'm actually going to record with her tomorrow. And, um, you know, I've, then I've had on like Gabrielle Reese, who was like, sports icon. Um, I had on one of the male guests I had was a friend who is a broker, like a mortgage broker and is a massive opioid addict and talked very openly about his opiate addiction and about how he has a normal job. You would see him at, he, you know, for all intents and purposes, a functioning person in society um, and has almost killed himself a couple of times because of opiates and um, can get whatever he wants because he has had so many stomach surgeries that he has chronic pain. And as long as he can pay for it, he could get whatever painkiller he wants mm-hmm. and talked honestly about how he's gamed the system, how, and this was before he went in for a surgery. So, um, you know, like some are dark. It almost felt yeah. like that was a pretty deep conversation, not necessarily dark, um, but deep conversation. I had a transgender female who came on and she talked about her um, transition from male to female and about like, put a, it, it put a face or not necessarily face because it's, it's, you know, it's an audio podcast, but it put the, it put the story and it put a person mm-hmm. to what was at the time, a lot of the bathroom stuff was going on, mm-hmm. um, uh, in like the national news and whatnot. And, and it's really interesting when you actually sit down and you hear an individual story, it, it can, I don't know, it might not change anybody's mind. Maybe it does, but it just puts a, a person to these, these, like these topics. And, um, so, so that was, 
a little bit heavy one, but not really at the same time, but it was more like fascination too, is like, okay, so like, what do you do? Like, what, what are, what are these steps? Like how, like, what were you feeling? And, and she was really open and honest and, um, you know, and then I've had on like, I don't know, we've had, I've had on authors, nutrition people, it's just stuff I get interested in. And then yeah. sometimes for a while they start to follow this. I've realized like, like recently I've been getting into, um, just cause we've got this like urban farm in our backyard, a little bit more like herbalism and stuff. So I'm like, Ooh, let me get on some herbalism people. <laughs> and a lot of it's like, I get to pick people's brains yeah. for a while. Um, you know, I'm really fascinated. It just came out as we're recording this, we're recording this on, um, the 19th of April, but, uh, I just put out an episode today that I recorded while I was in Boston, um, just two weeks ago. So you being from Massachusetts originally, we talked about, I talked with a woman who is in the cannabis industry mm-hmm. in Massachusetts. And as uh, people may or may not know, Massachusetts has legalized for adult use, otherwise known as recreational um, use, but sales don't start until July 1st. So she's been working in the medical side of the industry, but we talked about all the like kind of, I bet you as a lawyer, you'd find it really interesting because I I would, and I geeked out about businessy side of it, but it's like, how do you get paid? Right. Like, are you getting paid in cash? And she's like, no, I'm a W2. I have health insurance. I I gets direct deposited. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. And it's, but you get paid by, so here's the interesting thing, like the company, right? The, the store, it's all cash because most banks can't yeah, accept so there it. is one in Massachusetts that has been accepted since it's medical. Yeah. But now that it's moving to recreational mm-hmm. or adult use, that that is starting to change. So now they're the whole industry and actually even the state is trying to figure out like how can the bank that has been working with this industry continue to work with this industry. Yeah. So it's just fascinating, you know. And then I was like as well, if you have a medical card in one state, does it work in another state? Is it like a driver's license? Right. <laughs> right. You know? Like just really and then just boring, like how do you how do you talk to your parents? Like, how do you talk to your family and your friends about what you do as a career? Right. You know? And, um, and then we talked a, a nerdiness cause she also has a, an interest in wine. So we talked about the terpenes that are also in wine are also in the cannabis plant mm-hmm. and how they, those terpenes, what attributes they end up having and then what attributes they end up having to a person, whether, however they're ingesting, ingesting it. So it, it's just fascinating. Like, I mean, when I was doing my research on it, it is last year, according to CNN Money, it was a $9 billion industry in the US alone. It's projected to be $11 billion this year and $21 billion by 2021. It's absolutely <laughs> incredible. And, and, we're, and we're not taxing it, right? And so like from a it was, federal- it is, but not federal, yeah. Right, which like, yeah. this just seems yeah. ridiculous at this point. Yeah. And like the people in the industry are like, no, let's just figure this all out. Let's just get this all out. Like, you know, let's just have it be. And and even NPR just this week put out a story about how Wall Street's getting into investing in it too. It's just a fascinating industry. So we just went and we had a t- just a chat about all of the things, that, <laughs> yeah. you know, all the things like, and, and like that, that are popping up around this industry. And, you know, some people might might really dislike my podcast because I talked about that topic, but you know, the way I look at it is, um, you know, let's, let's 
bring these stories to life. And sometimes I feel like it's like investigative journalism almost in a way, but it's like, let's bring these stories to life, but in ways that we all can kind of relate to it. And instead of seeing something of being like, I am so anti that, like, let's look at it from like a humanist point of view. And, and I think a lot of times we're so apt to go find the differences with each other. Like, let's look at actually how we have a lot more commonalities than differences, I guess. I don't know. Maybe it's a totally like, you know, like idealistic way of looking at it all. But, um, I mean, it harkens back to your, you know, Vermont crunchiness, but yeah, and I don't think, (laughs) but I think it's great. (laughs) I mean, listen, one, one of the things with my, with mine is that I, and I'm always like, I mean, I hear rumor and, you know, I hear tell that what I'm doing is great for the industry, but at the same time, like I get to talk to these really badass women like yourself, you know, like (laughs) I talked to Catherine Switzer, Catherine Mm. fucking Switzer. And she's amazing. Yeah. Unbelievable. She's, you know, been an icon to me since I was, you know, in high school and running and, you know, um, it's kind of how I felt when I was talking to Gabrielle Reese. Yeah. you're, and then some people be like, who's that? And I'm like the like right. female icon of sport. Right. And they're like, oh, but she hasn't really been in sport for a while. I'm like, yeah, but she's still like what she, she's in a, they, they're doing a, great things. Yeah. 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 And I, yeah. I have to, I have to go remember that picture of a woman in black and white being pulled off the Boston marathon. Yeah. yeah that woman. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but so like, you know, for me, this is like an excuse for me to reach out to people. I would never, Sally Burgesson, like what the mm-hmm. hell am I doing sending her a message on LinkedIn and having her be my first guest? I don't know. I don't know, but I did. It happened. It's weird, but it happened. Um, and it's, you know, for, for the women in sports, um, it's great because even though people aren't going to know everyone's name and that's part of the problem. Right. Because mm-hmm. people know the men who do the same types of jobs. They know their names. Um, they don't know the women's and our industry publications aren't always the best at their top X under, you know, whatever age um, yeah. of making sure there are <laughs> enough women on there. I mean, that's kind of what sent me over the edge. I mean, the election sent me over the edge and then that sent me over <laughs> the edge and I needed to harness it for good. And, um, you know, hopefully provide value to other people as I'm doing it while I get to geek out, you know, about, you know, these, you know, cool ass women. And, you know, I was super excited to talk to you today too, because you, you've just taken such a different path. <laughs> yeah. And it continues to be different. I feel like every day, there are so many days where I, I was actually, I've, I talked with my friend who's a massage therapist and we we're like, you know, wouldn't it be awesome to just, have one of those jobs where you just go, you just like do your job, you go home. Oh God. You have like, and you like have like the football team that, and nothing is football or whatever, but you know, you're just like, you're just like, I just, I just like my, this is, I like my little things. It's what I like. And if people are in are do that and you're happy and you're comfortable and everything, keep doing it. Yeah. But, um, you know, that's not my path. I, 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 you know, my, my path, I, I feel like it's always going to be a little bit of a rockier one than most people, but, no, but it's okay, you know? And, um, you know, I, I've worked with some different therapists and they're like, yeah, it's just probably going to be your path. Like, yeah, 
Because if you did the other things, you're not going to be happy. And then like, right. yeah, you're right. You're well, right. <laughs> I, and I do, I do, you know, I say the same thing when it comes to like, you know, it, things that are going on in the world. And I get like, I'm very empathic. And so mm-hmm. like I, my rage level or like how sad I get, you know, depending on the event is like, can, can, can be a bit much sometimes. And I've learned how to deal with it, but like, you know, I'll have people be like, Bobby, you are always mad about something. (laughs) And I'm looking at them. I'm like, are you not seeing what's going on in the world? Where have you been? And they just look at me. They're like, I don't know. I walk my dog. I'm happy. And then that makes me mad because I'm like, well, why do I have to take on all the burden? And you, (laughs) you know, and it's just, I think that it's just how some people are, right? Like, it would be so nice to be in a very simple, you know, little, I think I could do that for a week, maybe, <laughs> yeah. you know? And then I'm like, I get, I get twitchy. I get itchy. I'm like, what, what's happening? Why, why am I not dominating the world right now? Why am I not making, you know, some noise and helping change things for the better? Like, I just, I don't know. I'm like, well, this sand isn't white enough. I should find something to make it whiter. <laughs> like I would find something, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, tell everybody, uh, well, first of all, the name of your book again, and, uh, when it's being re-released. Sure. Yeah. So the name of the book is, it's got a really long name. Um, (laughs) publishers make up names when you have a publisher for people that don't know that, or at least mine did. So it's called obstacle, um, obstacle race training. And it is how to, and then as a really long subtitle that is how to beat any course, compete like a champion and change your life. Um, but, uh, yeah, basically just, you know, if you just search my name and Amazon, it comes up or just search obstacle course racing, obstacle racing, both of those, it'll come up under, um, yeah. So, and it's got me jumping over fire uh, as the cover and the cover staying the same as far as I know. So uh, the current version is available. It remains available. And apparently the um, re-release is available for pre-order right now, awesome. which comes out on September 18th, 2018. Very cool. So, so that's the book. And then uh, <laughs> where can everyone find you, follow along, see all the things? Yeah. So um, I am, you can go to dirtinyourskirt.com. And then to make it really easy, I, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and uh, it's all dirt in your skirt are, are those. I have a journalist page that I, on Facebook that just links to the stuff that I write. Um, sometimes I share stuff over there, but um, if you want to kind of read what's going on, um, if you're really into obstacle racing, you want to read about like all that my ops racing new stuff that I'm writing on on like a daily basis. Motor on guides the best place to go. But if you just want to kind of, I feel like dirt in your skirts kind of like the jumping off point. And um, these days, I'm using Instagram a lot more these days than Twitter. Honestly, I don't. I use Facebook, but I'm not using it as much. And um, Instagram, you kind of get a mixed bag of everything I'm into. You might see a picture of my chickens, my bees, <laughs> or like um, a sports thing. Like if I'm at a race or if I'm uh, you know putting out a podcast and all that sort of stuff so um, but the podcast is Dirt in Your Skirt the podcast so um, pretty much Dirt in Your Skirt is the the hub for it all awesome <laughs> thank you so much for 
being on and and spending this time chatting. I've really enjoyed it, and I think uh, everyone's gonna love hearing it. Well, thanks so much for having me. This has been awesome. Thank you to Margaret for coming on the podcast. I I remember when we had that conversation and how much I just I just felt so good afterwards. Um, she and I actually ended up after recording talking for like another forty minutes. I think something ridiculous like that. So. Um, I think, uh, I think we've got, uh, a nice little friendship started. Um, please make sure you are headed to Apple podcasts, Google play, Stitcher, tune in and radioinfluence.com subscribing, excuse me, rating and reviewing the podcast and sharing is caring. So, you know, share some of your thoughts about it on social media. We're at LTPF pod on Insta, Facebook, and on Twitter. Um, and you can always email us at ltpfpod at gmail.com. Thanks and have a great week. This is a Jim Fannin show quick fix on radio influence. We need to make some decisions in this country. We do, not only on a national level, but all the way down to a local level. And I think that's one of the greatest things parents can do for your kids is turn them into world-class decision makers. Unfortunately, uh, you may have to let them lose a little bit so they can learn from it. A lot of lessons are learned in losses. When I looked into the eyes of the students, I thought, you know, we're going to be all right. Uh, they just need a little tools. They need a blueprint, uh, which is I, I, I'm open and free to share as much as I can. So everybody, find those zone performers that live in your own home. Encourage them. Inspire them. Maybe you don't know them. You know, it could even be a brother. Uh, it could be a sister. Uh, or maybe it's your son or daughter. There's a lot behind uh a face. There, there's a lot behind a smile. There's a lot behind a frown. The Jim Fannin Show can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.